Hello, I am Chris Russo, and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room, episode 17. Hard to believe we are that far in. I am recording this and hopefully distributing this on Wednesday, February 24th, 2021. We begin uh, a, a big week in sports news, but with some news that is sad, but I mean, it could have been a lot worse. Uh, so, obviously, Tiger Woods' car accident in Los Angeles, uh, apparent. Apparently in Rancho Palos Verdes, <clears throat> uh, 7 a.m. Tuesday morning, February 7 a.m. Pacific time, Tuesday morning, February 23rd, uh, crashed uh, single car collision, a single car crash. Um, apparently, first off, uh, first off, not life-threatening injuries. Fortunately, uh, lengthy emergency surgery on apparently his lower right leg and ankle. Uh, Multiple fractures on uh, his uh, legs, possible risk of infection. Fortunately, um, doctors at Harbor UCLA Medical Center were able, were able to take care of it. They inserted a rod into his tibia, to, just to go into the specifics here, stabilized his foot, and he had a big right ankle injury uh, with some screws and pins and, and all of that. Uh, fortunately he's all right. I know, um, uh, fortunately part of that is, uh, alcohol or prescription drugs were not involved because I know he's had some substance abuse issues. Um, he had an addiction to painkillers and that resulted in a DUI about four years ago. But, um, uh, so that's, that's one thing. Fortunately it was not, uh, due to that. Uh, and, and, but more importantly, it was not a life-threatening collision. People say, I think there are people that are um, from the hospital that are apparently saying he is fortunate to have his life after this, and uh, thank goodness he is. I know uh, Stephen A. Smith was one of the people who spoke out and, and said how weird this would have been, uh, how awful this would have been if he had uh, passed. Well, it's awful anyway, but how, uh, how much worse it would have been if he had passed and... Uh, especially because it's like a year and maybe a couple weeks after Kobe Bryant, and apparently this is right around the same area. And of course, I mean, part of that has to do with, I think the important um, uh, part of that, of course, has to do with um, the fact that they are African, that they were both African American athletes, and and have had a great impact not just on African Americans, but on cult, on on sports culture and, and popular culture in general. But it's just very fortunate that uh, Tiger Woods is going to be okay. I don't look. I don't know how long it's going to be until if and when he gets back on a golf course again. But just be fortunate that he is out of there with his life, with his health, and uh, with. Uh, uh, it doesn't seem like he's going to be. And it seems like he has the. Uh, he doesn't lose any feeling in his legs. So let's just be grateful for that because this could have been a lot worse. So we have a few things, a lot of things to discuss this week. I think I'll, I'll, I'll lead off after that with the whole Artemi Panarin situation. Artemi Panarin takes a leave of absence after being accused of domestic abuse against an 18-year-old girl by his former KHL coach, Andre Nazarov. Now, uh, Panarin leaves. That's big news, obviously, because of, of how important he is to the Rangers. He was injured briefly and then came back for a, I think a game or two and then had to and then left because of this 
I don't, uh, now the thing is, it doesn't seem like he's leaving because of the accusations so much as, <clears throat> excuse me, as, as this may be politically motivated. So Artemi Panarin is perhaps the highest profile Russian athlete to rail against Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, now I'm look, I'm staying out of this, uh, but this is uh, it, it seems to be politically motivated. These accusations. Now it's very well possible that Panarin did this because uh, look, we've seen it. It domestic violence is obviously unfortunately a common thing. Unfortunately, it's been a fairly it has not been a rarity in athletes. Uh, particularly in contact sports, major contact sports, the NFL, and at times in the NHL. Now, uh, this was apparently, uh, apparently Panarin would have been, not that it makes a difference, but I think Panarin would have also been 18, year old, 18 years old when this happened. So I don't know if he actually did it. I am not going to rule out the possibility. But the fact is, no girl has come forward, or woman, no woman has come forward making these accusations, just the coach. Um, Nazarov is reportedly a major supporter of Vladimir Putin. And, you know, even though Russia is a democratic society, um, there have been instances we've seen at times that perhaps there are traces of sort of that whole, uh, that whole ambiance, I guess, uh, it's not, not the right way to say it, I think, but the character, characteristics of some of that Soviet Union enforcement and perhaps a lack of freedom of speech. So, now, I, again, I don't know if he did it, but no one has come forward, just the coach granted uh, we did, uh, you may remember I think it was a couple episodes ago we discussed during the Mickey Calloway incident and um, uh, Mickey Calloway and Jared Porter that uh, the woman who accused I believe the woman who accused Mickey Calloway did not want to be known because apparently her country she was a foreigner apparently her country whatever it is we don't know kind of stigmatizes their uh, female victims of these crimes. They, they bl their victim, they tend to blame the victims, even if, if, the, even if they did absolutely nothing wrong. So it, it's very well, so if this is true, I would say, and, and, and God forbid that, that a crime like this has occurred, then I would think there's your explanation probably for why no woman has come forward. Uh, so, uh, look, I hope he, of course we hope he didn't do it. We hope that this is a, a, a made-up thing. Um, I, I do want to say, I I understand, I would understand if he was taking a leave because he knew he had done it, but he has denied the accusations, the Rangers have denied the accusations, but I think he's doing leaving this more because of because it's politically motivated because it's more an intimidation tactic because I've seen this I didn't know the term but I've seen this called a hit piece I've seen people call this a hit piece many times this, these accusations and this uh, the, the 
the, the news coming out. And I feel like, I, I, using my best judgment, I would have to think that that has to do with putting out a hit on somebody. And perhaps that is why Artemi Panarin is leaving the... is, is taking a, a, an indefinite leave of absence. You know, so because I have seen players do or be accused of domestic violence or even worse, or or perhaps actually have done, uh, committed domestic violence or or worse, and not have to leave or not decide to leave. Most of the time they stick around. Look at a lot of guys. There are a lot of guys in the NFL. I'm not going to say the majority, but I think there's a significant minority of players in the NFL in particular and maybe a handful in the NHL, I, I don't know about the other sports, but we've seen it in the NFL in particular where guys have either been accused of or committed domestic violence, or, or perhaps worse, and they they fight it, even if, even if evidence points toward the contrary. Artemi Panarin is vehemently denying these things, but I don't think he's leaving because he did it. I think he's leaving because he's he, he feels like his life may be threatened. That's what that's what I think is the issue here. But clearly, regardless of whether it's true, which it very well could be, I will not I will not dispute that that, that possibility. This is an intimidation tactic. Clearly, the, the, because the the circumstances around it are very fishy, it, it must be an intimidation tactic, even if it is true, because of Panarin's criticism of uh, of Vladimir Putin of whom Nazarov is clearly a, a stout supporter. So I I hope this whole thing can be resolved as soon as possible. Um, moving on to the NH- a little around the NHL, more news from this past week. Claude Julien was fired by the Montreal Canadiens after apparently about five seasons with the organization, or in this stint, I believe he was there one more time. They would, uh, his contract expires at the end of this season. Montreal, now I understand why why the Habs fired Julien, because they started 8-2-2, two, and two, and they've gone 1-3-2 and two in the six games since then. That being said, they're still fourth in the Canada division. They call it the Scotia North division, but really it's the Canada division. It's all the Canadian teams. I mean, the, the fact is, if they're still fourth in that division with a few really good teams in Toronto, Edmonton, Calgary in particular, and probably Vancouver and Winnipeg as well, uh, then, I mean, the fact that they're they're fourth, even after that start, a six-game skid with four points, it's I, don't, I still don't think it's that bad to, I don't think it's bad enough for him to be fired, because what he did with this team last year was incredibly impressive, once they reached the bubble, and they were in as I think I think the 16 team, either the 15th or 16th best team. No, I'm sorry. I think they were the like the were they like the 12 in the Eastern Conference? I think or something like that. In or, or the maybe yeah, like the 12 seed in the Eastern Conference in this 2014 bubble, 12 in the East, and they stunned the Pittsburgh Penguins in four games, even though the Penguins were definitely the better team. And then, I forget who they played the next round. Whoever they played the next round, they gave them a run for their money. Uh, it was the Flyers. 
who would go on to be within a win of going to the uh, a win of going to the to the uh, conference final. Flyers had a good year. No, but what he did with this team last year, uh, a team that played well, that really punched above its weight. Uh, I'm a little I'm a little surprised that they're letting go of him this soon. I'm actually going to talk about that a little more near the end of the program. In a different sport, I'll be talking about that a little bit with Ryan Saunders and the Timberwolves. Obviously, this is a different situation because Claude Julien has won the Stanley Cup. He's in the top 15 all-time in wins. He's going to the Hall of Fame, and Ryan Saunders is much younger and it's a different sport, but it, the, the point still stands to some extent. Now, uh, moving on, wrapping up some of this NHL discussion, I would just like to talk about the outdoor, the outdoor games at Lake Tahoe this past weekend. Now, the fanfare of it, I, I think, was great. I loved seeing, I loved the atmosphere around it, these beautiful views of the mountains and the lake at the, the, the pretty much the southernmost part, almost, of Lake Tahoe on the Nevada side. Gorgeous views. It was absolutely beautiful. And I loved the atmosphere, the, the fact that they had they had a, a few people on boats in the middle of Lake Tahoe. It looked a lot, and there, uh, these people on their on their kayaks. It almost looked like those, like San Francisco Giants fans out in McCovey Cove. They're looking for the home run ball in right field. I I loved that atmosphere. It was great. It uh, I loved the the sort of the fake cabin with the that that one was cool. Uh, the, the fact that the Coast Guard delivered everything, the NHL really know, the NHL the NHL really knows how to put on some good page, pageantry, especially with the outdoor games. They do a great job with that. Um, I I the broadcast I thought was very good because I had never seen. This is not about the game itself, but Mike Tirico. I, I had never seen Mike Tirico do play by play for hockey before. I had definitely seen him do a lot of studio work for hockey. I had never seen him do play-by-play. He actually did a very good job, I thought. I'm still kind of waiting. I don't know what the NHL is really... I don't know what NBC is really doing, because I don't know if they're... Because I figured Kenny Albert was going to be the next guy after Doc Emmerich, but maybe it's because he's working in a a lot of different places. Uh, But it seems like they've gone by committee. So it's been... Like, Tariko this past game, apparently he's done a couple more. Kenny Albert, I think John Forsland, and, and Gord Miller... In particular, but Tariko did an excellent job. He had great chemistry with Eddie Olchek, and I really, I actually really, he was kind of corny. I re- but I really liked that guy, um, uh, Rutledge Wood. I thought actually did a pretty good job. It was it was weird not seeing Pierre Maguire there, and that you didn't hear a lot of Brian Boucher. But Rutledge Wood, who apparently I had never heard of him before. Apparently, he does NASCAR with NBC, and just really, <laughs> especially between the first and second periods, after the first period of the. Vegas Colorado game where they were just trying to fill time because they weren't sure if they were coming back after, with, with the delay. Yeah, he, he did a good job filling a lot of time, in particular with the oh when he wiped when he wiped out trying to do the Happy Gilmore golf swing, but it had snowed the night before. That was hilarious. So I, if you want to watch some of that coverage, look it up. It's it it's great. As for the games themselves, unfortunately, I. I had to work, or well, I got to work. I called um, Sunday morning. I did play by play by play. Thank you to Anthony DePaolo, by the way, for for letting me switch. I got to do play by play for the '87s game 
for the uh, premier game against the Renegades. I thought I did a pretty good job, particularly after the first period. Thank you to Anthony DiPaolo for asking to switch because he wanted to be the ringside reporter at one point, and he did a great job because I've at least done play-by-play before. He'd never done that before. But anyway, that is why I couldn't stay up that late to because <clears throat> it was a 10:50 puck drop, and then I got to drive like a little like over an hour down there and get up really early. So it was a midnight puck drop to start the second period after the game was after the Vegas Colorado game was delayed after the first period because the sun had such a glare. Even though it was 30 degrees, it was below freezing. The sun had such a glare in Lake Tahoe and at such an angle that. Uh, unfortunately, the, the the ice was just melting, just turning to to snow and slush. I I was kind of hoping they would start this, they would restart it at maybe nine o'clock Eastern. But I actually I, I spoke about this um, with uh, Matt Kieran, one of the 87s coaches, and he we, we were just talking, we were just goofing around and talking about. And he's right, they had to you have to wait like at least an, at the very least an hour for after the sundown for everything to to really freeze again. So I couldn't stay up for the rest of that game. I did watch pretty much all of that Flyers-Bruins game, which was fairly entertaining, on Sunday night uh, after coming back from from Wall calling the 87s game. So it's a shame that the Sun pushed back the first game because I would have loved to watch the rest of it. But we got some great highlights. Colorado really outplayed... I'm sorry. Yes, Colorado really outplayed Vegas in the first period of that game, and they held on. Uh, it's a, for, for the sake of the game, it was actually a good thing. I think that it got just enjoyment of the game. I think it was actually a good thing that that got pushed back because Vegas was not performing. They were outshot, I think, like 17-7 to 7 in the first period. Granted, I think that some of that had to do with the, the actual ice conditions, but it made the game a lot better in the second and third, from what I heard. Colorado won three to two, and in the second game, Bruins Flyers Sunday night, I it, it wasn't that close a game, but we got a lot of we got a great monster performance from David Pasternak, and obviously we know he's a solid player. He tied I think Ovechkin with 48 goals for the league lead in the shortened season last year. But David Pasternak had a real breakout performance with a hat trick against the Flyers, a dominating performance by the Boston Bruins that that just highlights again how exciting this Metropolitan Division is. So I really enjoyed that, and uh, I really hope, I actually want to bring up kind of briefly, maybe I'll do this a little more so at one point if we we get to a slow news week and I can just talk about lists and things like that, just, just stuff you can talk about at any time. But I would love to see more outdoor games in in different places, obviously, because they've been mostly in stadiums, which I think they should be, in stadiums of the same cities as, or general areas as team the teams in which, that play in the games. So, for example, the Bruins and the Flyers we saw at Fenway Park. And this was the first time, except, I mean... The big, University of Michigan, Maple Leafs Red Wings at the Big House at, in Ann Arbor, that was technically, it's outside of Detroit officially, but it was, but I mean, it's in the area. But this was the first time that this was a game that was, re, an outdoor game that was really out of the way of, of any 
team. So I would love to see them play. I would love to see the NHL have an outdoor game, probably like a wild Blackhawks game at Lambeau Field. That, I think, is the next place where they really have to do it. There are a few other places. I think my dad actually brought up, this is kind of a cool idea, if they did a game at like Yellowstone or if they did a game at Yellowstone, uh, yeah, Yellowstone, uh, and I guess you'd probably have, I don't know, Avalanche and Flames maybe or something like that. Uh, or if you went to Old, I think you went by Old Faithful and you somehow got the geyser to go off every time uh, every time someone scored, which is ridiculous because it's a naturally occurring element, but I, but I, <laughs> I kind of like that idea. Uh, just play. My brother actually brought up play, playing the game in front of Mount Rushmore, which I thought would be pretty. I mean, some of these are actually, they're doable. They're, they're possible. Um, so uh, there are the, some really cool spots that I would just love to see because this because the outdoor games really take you to, to the roots of hockey in that they are outdoors. But the Lake Tahoe game was the first time where it wasn't in a stadium. It really was truly outdoors in the purely open air. There's no stadium surrounding you, but it's in the purely open air in in a more in a, in a much less urban area. So I loved that, and I really hope the NHL keeps it going. Plus, I cannot wait until we have fans back. I'll actually talk about that at the end of the show. The, fan, the very end of the show, I'll talk about fans being back in New York and in New Jersey. So moving on to Major League Baseball, and the biggest... Story of the week by far. I'll, I'll talk about a few small free agent signings and one big one. But uh, the biggest story of the week was definitely Seattle Mariners president and CEO Kevin Mather resigning after saying a number of inappropriate and, and at times offensive things uh, on a meeting with a rotary club, on a, vir- on a virtual meeting. So... To, Pretty much, to put it, he was very candid, very candid, ju- just to put it that way. He said one or, or two things that were that were fairly out of place or offensive, but I, the, 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 the biggest problem was him just being very candid and too open about things that a general manager should not discuss in public. So I took down a bunch of notes from a guy. Initially, I didn't know... I kind of skimmed over this article article from MLB.com about it, and I was wondering, did he really say anything wrong? And then I watched, um, if you know John Boy, John Boy is the one who, John Boy Media is the one who kind of reads everybody's lips in the middle of like baseball fights and stuff like that. You, you probably know him from YouTube. So he had this like 15-minute long video of just describing everything Mather did wrong. So, here you go. First off, he said, quote, our payroll was as low as it was going to get, thank goodness. So, first off, stupid thing to say because you're bragging about how low the payroll is. Seattle is, though a fairly large city, and I think it's like a mid to lower market apparently, and he's just kind of bragging about how little money they're paying, which is ridiculous for the lack of success they've had in the last 20 years, or 15 to 20 years. But it, it's also kind of inappropriate because uh, some of the, a lot of these teams and a lot of players have donated so much during the pandemic. He His reasoning for this was he said 
Our payroll was as low as it was going to get, thank goodness. He was saying this because uh, that was one of the reasons how the Mariners were able to survive, and I guess Major League Baseball was able to survive the pandemic. He also said that the Mariners, quote, got a lot more than they deserved, unquote, from their TV deal with Root Sports. You don't say that, maybe you say that at home, you don't say that in a, in a place where you know you're being recorded, or you could be recorded. So Root Sports, and John Boy pointed this out, Root Sports now has the right, whenever their TV deal is up, to renegotiate for much less money. Because so much, uh, granted, MLB probably makes most of their money from ticket sales, but a lot of it has to do with TV deals. That That is so much of why athletes are paid such ridiculous amounts for playing games. As much as I love sports, you know, Sports, guys get paid way more than you would think they should. but And a lot of that comes from the TV deals. So now, as low as the Mariners' payroll is, it's going to be even lower thanks to what Mathers said. He also said that the younger that a few younger players would not be brought up, not, not because of a lack of development, mind you, but because he wanted to delay the beginning of their service time. So, if you don't know what service time is, I wasn't sure exactly what the speci- what the specifications were, but essentially, as John Boy explained it, once a guy starts in the major leagues, you have control of his contract for three years, and then you, you pay him a small salary, and then you go to arbitration after three years. So for the next three years after that, you go into arbitration, and after that six years you have a, uh, this guy can go into free agency or or you can try to sign him. So you have control over this guy for six years. And a lot of teams have manipulated this system to a point where they push back, regardless of how young players are playing in the minor leagues, they push back their time so they can have further control over their service time. It's it's something that's kind of controversial within the league. This was probably most notably done by the Cubs when Chris Bryant first came up. You may remember that they pushed back pushed him back so he wouldn't have so instead of coming up on opening day, he came up like two or three weeks into the regular season. This was probably in either 2014 or 15. So it's it's a controversial thing and it's a thing that Definitely should be addressed now. Garrett Garrett Cole very notably comp- complained about it after the fact, but that stupid thing to bring up. Now the un- now the the players' association is licking their chops for the next negotiation. So Mather also said that 2021 would be Kyle Seager's last season with Seattle. Stupid thing to say. You don't reveal. What's going to happen in advance? I doubt, and apparently, Kyle Seeger's wife tweeted something and said, "I guess we should start put. I think I guess we should put our house on the market," which is funny because Kyle Seeger has been like one of the best Mariners of the last five to ten years or so. Even though the Mariners have struggled, so and then he spoke highly of Seeger, and then after that, he called him overpaid. Why? What? What is the point of making that so public? Then, then this was. This was this was kind of offensive. This was more so just just cheap. He was talking about Hisashi Iwakuma, a great Mariner pitcher. 
And he said that he was tired of – he's paying Iwakuma, I don't know, probably like $10, $15 million a year. He was tired of paying Iwakuma's interpreter $75,000 a year. That is nothing. That is nothing even for the the the, the lowest payroll, the, the least – that is nothing even for like the Tampa Bay Rays to pay. Uh, even if you have the lowest payroll in baseball, you're not going <laughs> – you're gonna pay. You're gonna complain over paying seventy five thousand dollars a year. That's like Charlie Comiskey complaining back in nineteen nineteen that he was uh, that he was paying too much to pay six pay six thousand dollars a year instead of ten and give guys champagne for bonuses, a bottle of flat champagne for their bonuses when they won the American League pennant. And that's why the Black Sox thing happened. Watch Eight Men Out. You're gonna love that movie. Sorry, I went off into a tangent here. But anyway, that was ridiculous. He also said, he also said, Mather said that he gets to charge thirty to fifty dollars for parking because the area around that he gets to charge that much that he can pretty much he says he's bragging about being able to hike the prices of the parking around the ballpark because the area around T-Mobile Park isn't that safe, and that apparently he also tells his employees to park further away from the ballpark. Now I have been to many a ball game. And if you go, I, I'm telling you, particularly in New York, they charge ridiculous amounts of money for parking alone. I'm telling you, I think, I'm pretty sure that the parking at, I know I know Yankee Stadium, the parking is actually, last I checked, more than the price of a single, of a single ticket in the upper deck. It's ridiculous. I'm telling you, if you want, you can see. I'm not uh, the the Mets are relatively cheap. I know the the Nationals are supposed to be their parking their parking prices. I think are through the roof. But if I think if the Yankees, I I think they made it apparently like a hundred dollars at times to go to to park during the postseason or into the World Series. It's ridiculous, and uh, the Yankees say that they're not affiliated with. Well, I, I'm not, they say they're not affiliated with the parking garage, so they can't control the prices, which doesn't even make sense. It's called the Jacob Rupert Garage. It's called, or it's, but, uh, and like, I'm, I'm telling you, I've seen people pay off the employees to get better spots when it's jammed. It's ridiculous. And you can't pay with, uh, you can't pay cash. You can't pay cash at the at this machine. You can only pay with a credit card. It's ridiculous. So I know how the MLB, and I guess now the Mariners in particular, really, really treat people poorly in terms of parking. Because seats can be relatively cheap, but that's how they get you. They get you with the parking. So that's ridiculous. And then, then Mather, without referring to him by name, talks about, we know it's Mike Leake because he says... Okay, well, I'm not going to refer to this pitcher by name, but uh, he, he was there in 2019, and we traded him to the Arizona Diamondbacks. How how much does that narrow it down? What, so, so then he talks about a beef between Mike Leake and uh, Marco Gonzalez, where I think Marco Gonzalez, Leake had sort of an attitude in spring training, and then Gonzalez shoved Leake, pushed him against a wall or something like that. It's ridiculous. And then he said something about Jared Kalenic. That's another thing. He talked about Jared Kalenic and Julio Rodriguez. He said that Kalenic 
was who I believe went in the who was really the centerpiece of that well retrospectively was kind of the centerpiece of that trade where the Mets traded Jay Bruce and I guess Kalenic and probably a couple other minor leaguers for Edwin Diaz and Robinson Cano. So Kalenic is I think the number five prospect with, with the Mariners or number five prospect in baseball and Mathers says that Kalenic is jealous of Julio Rodriguez, another Mariners prospect, because Kalenic is the five prospect and Rodriguez is the number four, which is petty and stupid and ridiculous. Yes, but why would you bring that up? Why would you do that to Kalenic? Now, Kalenic has questions to answer. And he also says about, he openly says, yeah, I don't think we're going to, yeah, Kalenic's not going to be back at the beginning. Not, I, I, it was Kalenic or, or some other pitcher says, yeah, he, he's not going to be here uh, April 1st. He'll probably be here about April 15th, the, the middle of April. And he's openly saying that this is because of the service time situation. So they can save money and, and kind of just hold on to these players for longer. They're manipulating the system. And he says that Julio Rodriguez, one of the first things he brings up about Julio Rodriguez is that he does not speak good English whatsoever. Now, I th- now to be fair, to be fair, and I may get I may get criticized for this. I think it is important, or I don't think it's entirely necessary, but uh, I think it is important for players to try at least try to learn English if they are uh, going to play Major League Baseball because they're all you know Amer- the United States is primarily an English speaking country. We will we'll bring in an interpreter. Obviously, the Mariners won't, but we'll adapt. And Canada, you know, there's no French Canadian team. So I, I, so to be fair, but to be fair though, I think that players, if you're going to be playing in, in the United States or Canada, you should try to adapt. Um, I, I have no problem with people having interpreters. Obviously, if, you, uh, if you're going to struggle with the language, I'd say the same thing if I were going to play hockey in Russia, for example, or something like that. But, uh, and, and, you know, it takes players some time to learn English. Some, some of them don't get the grasp of it. Some of them, unfor- unfortunately, never learn it. And that's not, you know, it's just me. I'm saying that not because I want to take away from these people's heritage, but just because it makes it easier to speak with players, to, to speak with reporters, and just to speak with people in general if you're going to be living in the United States is going to be a lot easier. But he, this was like one of one of the two or three first things that he brought up about Julio Rodriguez, and he, he kind of emphasized it, and almost made it seem like this was part of the reason why he was not coming up to the major leagues. So I, they, they screwed up there. I mean, th- there were so many reasons, so many reasons, so many stupid things said by Kevin Mather that leading him to want to resign. And that is, I think, part of why the Mariners now, I think, have the the longest active, if not maybe the longest ever, postseason drought by an MLB team. I know it's the longest active. They haven't reached the playoffs since 2001. And you know what? I wanted to bring this up because Mather came in, I believe Mather came in after Howard Lincoln left the organization, but I... So, hold on just a moment. So, Kevin Mather is apparently also a minority owner of the team. Okay, so here you go. He joined the organization in 1996. 
He succeeded Chuck Armstrong as team president in 2014. Now, I'm not going to say this about the Mariners in general. As a, I'm not going to say that the Mariners are necessarily a poorly run organization, but there are certain people within the organization who do not make it look good and give a lot of, and who indirectly give a lot of reasoning for why the Mariners haven't been to the playoffs in 20 years and why they have, and why they're the only active MLB team never to reach the World Series now that the Nationals have won. So I, I saw this story and I thought immediately of this quote from Lou Pinella's autobiography. And by the way, Lou Pinella, just wanted to point out, Lou Pinella should be in the Hall of Fame already as a, as a major league manager because of what he did. He won a world championship in Cincinnati and because of what he did in Seattle. Uh, and with the Cubs as well, and a little bit with Tampa Bay. Uh, good ball player too. But anyway, Lou Pinella, I, I have his autobiography co-written with Bill Madden, great, uh, great writer for the New York, um, I think he's Daily News, not Post. So Bill Madden, great sports writer. Now, I remembered immediately this quote that Lou Pinella had from Howard Lincoln, who is who was the CEO, I think was in the same position as Mather. But the thing is, uh, Howard Lincoln, first off, was more of not really much of a baseball guy. He because he he didn't come from a baseball background. He started with Nintendo. So Howard Lincoln, not really a guy with a baseball background. And here's the context. In 2002, uh, the Seattle Mariners were coming off years of a lot of success. They had never been to the World Series. They still haven't. But under Lou Pinella, in 1995, they reached the American League Championship Series. They won their division again in 1997. In 2000, they reached the American League Championship Series and came within two wins of going to the World Series. And in 2001, they finished with the tied for the most wins in the regular season in Major League history. And I, I want to say the most ever by an American League team. So, uh, the Mariners ended up losing in the ALCS to the Yankees for the second consecutive year, but they were a very successful team. The Mariners have had some of the greatest players of all time. They've had Ken Griffey Jr., who I would argue is I don't know, maybe like the seventh best player in history and one of the greatest center fielders of all time. Ken Griffey Jr., I, I would argue probably the greatest player of the last 30 years, greatest baseball player of my lifetime. Uh, Edgar Martinez, I would argue the best DH of all time, particularly because of the steroid accusations against uh, David Ortiz and because Martinez was pretty much a full-time DH. Uh, Jay Buhner, fine ball player. Ichiro Suzuki, perhaps the best pure hitter of all time, aside from maybe Ty Cobb or Pete Rose. Most combined hits between the U.S. and Japan. A lot of the greatest play players in the history of the game. Randy Johnson, one of the greatest southpaws of all time. So anyway... Then Alex Rodriguez, likely pre-steroid Alex Rodriguez, who was a very good young ball player in one of these three great shortstops with Derek Jeter and Nomar Garcia Parra in the late 90s. So the Mariners were a great team. Tino Martinez, another one. Jay Buhner. Uh, Joey Cora. Anyway, great organization, a lot of talent, great managing, great managerial talent with Lou Pinella. And by 2002, middle of 2002, Randy Johnson, I believe, had been traded 
Randy Johnson, the, the previous year, had one co-World Series MVP in Arizona. Alex Rodriguez had signed then the largest deal in history with the Texas Rangers. Ken Griffey Jr. had been traded to Cincinnati. Edgar Martinez was still around. But a lot of these guys left. A lot of these guys because the Mariners would not pay up. That, that's part of it. Granted, A-Rod got a lot of money. But a lot of these guys, but part of it was the Mariners would not pay up. And so in 2002, Mariners had a shot at the postseason again. Despite trading some of these guys, they retooled. They got Freddie Garcia, Carlos Guillen, Ichiro, Mike Cameron. A lot of great ballplayers. And they had a shot at the postseason. Howard Lincoln, who I believe was the CEO of the Mariners, said, we are not making any moves at the deadline. We are not making any moves whatsoever. And Lou Pinella kind of offhandedly, I believe in private, made this comment about the Houston Astros in 2002 and, and immediately following that and said, hey, they're going for it. They're trying to win. And kind of an offhanded comment that was not really meant with any malice, I don't believe, against the Mariners, even though he, he, he disagreed with, with Lincoln's philosophy there. So, Howard Lincoln confronts Lou Pinella and wants to know, angrily, want, he wants to know what he means by that, whether he was criticizing him. And this became public, maybe this was public, actually. So Howard Lincoln goes out in the press and tells a columnist this. So Lou Pinella says, I was shocked when Lincoln, in defending our inaction, told the Seattle Times columnist Larry Stone, quote, The goal of the Mariners is not to win a World Series. Now, now that quote alone even out of context, with with or without context, is horrible if, if you run a franchise. Okay, so the goal of the Mariners is not to win a World Series. It is to field a competitive team year after year to put itself in position to win a World Series and hope at some point it happens. And then I like what Lou Pinella says, so unquote, and then I like what Lou Pinella says here. He says, one thing was sure, I knew I wasn't working for Mr. Steinberg anymore. So uh, Lou Pinella, of course, was the... Uh, played for the Yankees for much of his career, won a couple of championships in the late 70s with Reggie Jackson and Thurman Munson, and was the manager under for a brief time under George Steinbrenner. Did, did a decent job. That quote is indefensible as for anyone, even a player who is just playing for the money. That is indefensible. And it's so unfair to the people of Seattle that that quote exists because if you know the Mariners and you know particularly what happened in 1995, the Mariners in 18 years had never been to the playoffs in their franchise history. And in 1995, they were trying to, the kingdom was in disarray. The Mariners were trying to get a new stadium and if they weren't, they were probably going to leave and move to like either San Jose or Tampa or something like that. And the Mariners made a shocking run. They were one of the best teams in baseball down the stretch. They stormed into the postseason. They won one of the greatest playoff series in any sport ever against the Yankees, a five-game series. Ken Griffey Jr. hit five home runs in five games. Edgar Martinez with this unbelievable double. Ken Griffey Jr. popping his head out from under this pile with that big kid smile and 
the Mariners, and they saved baseball in Seattle. And now they got a new ballpark. They've been back in the NLCS. But there's just so, as great as some of the highs have been for the Mariners, there have been even worse lows. And when you see, when you hear that Howard Lincoln quote, and you see some of these things from Kevin Mather, it's just disappointing to see knowing how passionate that fan base is and how much, with how much they've had to suffer. And it's just really disappointing to, to hear you know, such a lack of professionalism from somebody who's supposed to be right at, almost at the tippy top of the ladder of the organization, that structural ladder. And I don't know what's next. I really don't know what's next. All right, uh, moving on. Uh, just going to wrap, have some more uh, free agency discussion. Ian Kennedy signs a minor league deal with the Texas Rangers worth $2.15 million. If he makes the major league roster from spring training performance, he has pitched in the bullpen in recent years, injured through much of 2020. Obviously, Texas has kind of fallen off the map a little bit with the resurgence of Oakland and Anaheim making their signings and Houston making a run last year. You know, Texas has, has kind of gone into rebuilding mode. I like the move, though. Ian, Ian Kennedy's a good veteran pitcher. He obviously is not a starter anymore, but he's a very smart, skilled pitcher. And it, it's look if it's two if it's two million dollars and he, and he can make the roster that's not that bad for what Texas has done I that's not that bad all right moving on a source says Jake Lamb has agreed to a one year deal with Atlanta so Lamb Johan Camargo plus non non roster invitees I can't believe I'm actually saying James, Jason Kipnis is a non roster invitee and Pablo Sandoval could also be a, a lot of great power pinch hitters who could do th- great things for the Braves. That's one of the places where they've they've lacked uh, talent. And the Braves, look, obviously the Dodgers are going to be the favorite once again in the National League, especially after signing Trevor Bauer. But the Braves always have good pitching. They have better hitting this year. And if they can add some power hitting off the bench from Jake Lamb in particular for, for a relatively cheap price, then kudos to them. Jeremy Jeffress signs a $1.25 million deal with the Nationals, which doubles if he makes the Major League roster. Jeremy Jeffress, a lot of people forget, what, like two, three years ago, how great he was with Milwaukee and how solid the back end of that bullpen was. And the fact that the Nationals are only getting him for two and a half if he makes the Major League roster is a great signing. They ha- they obviously have the starting pitching. They still have the starting pitching intact from a couple of years ago. Look, they lost Rendon, but they, you know, there have been there have been differences from that team that won the World Series. But if they can improve that bullpen and get Jeremy Jeffers for a cheap price, then that's a, that's a great job. National League East may be the best division in baseball this year. Brett Gardner returning to the Yankees for one year and four million dollars. So I think it's a good signing. But the thing is, because Brett Gardner is still the longest tenured active Yankee. Fan favorite, still can hit for some power. He's good, kind of a platoon guy now. Has speed, even though he, they don't really send him much anymore, unfortunately. The stolen base is, is kind of a lost art in, in Major League Baseball. But the big question here 
is whether Clint Frazier or he will be the starter in left field. Because Frazier has obviously proven himself in the last year or two to be the guy. And now, if they're only signing Gardner for $4 million in one year, I would think he's near the, he, look, he's near the end of his career. I would think that he is going to be playing off the bench or maybe as kind of a semi-platoon guy in left field. He can still play center. He can still play some center field, good at the top of the lineup or, or bottom of the lineup. But I, I, regardless, I think it's a good deal for the franchise if he's not going to be the primary left fielder. Not saying he's not capable of doing that, but when you have a talent like Clint Frazier there, after what he's done and how he's kind of recovered from from with from some you know attitude struggles, then then yeah, definitely. Now, last one here, Fernando Tatis Jr. signing a long-term extension with the San Diego Padres, fourteen years, three hundred and forty million dollars. Now, that's a ridiculous number of years, and that is a ridiculous number of money put together. Not as crazy. Uh, the importance, uh, I like that there are a few deals now. We kind of saw this with Bryce Harper, that there's the important, and we kind of saw this with DJ LeMayhew on a lower level. The import, players are emphasizing the importance of years and guaranteed money over total salary. Because Tatis Jr. is getting roughly $24 million a year, but he gets extra years. I know that... Look, to anyone not playing sports, $24 million is a lot of money. But compared to what some guys are getting paid, unfortunately, it is not as much money. But I, I really like that that players are, well, even though they're getting a ton, are willing to take a little less money so they can spend a longer time, so they can get more guaranteed money, more, more years, more time, and particularly that they're, that they're being, even though they're getting paid a lot, they they are being more loyal to the organization. So I, I like this deal, and Fernando Tatis Jr. is going to be the face of the San Diego Padres for a long time. He is one of the best shortstops in baseball, one of the best players in baseball, and another guy who can, who can truly change the game. And maybe they can finally deliver a championship to San Diego for the first time since the AFL Chargers in like 1968. Three, I want to say, which is the longest drought ever. All right, so in just a moment, I will come back and talk about Carson Wentz deal, as well as Mike Upati's retirement, Ryan Saunders firing, and maybe most importantly, fans being back in New York and New Jersey. So we will be right back in just a moment. Back here on Sports in the Waiting Room, going to wrap up the show in a few minutes. First off, I want to discuss Carson Wentz and the trade of the Colts. Carson Wentz traded to Indianapolis for a third rounder in 2021 and a second rounder in 2022. Steal for the Colts. Uh, Jalen Hurts gets his job. Carson Wentz gets his offensive coordinator, Frank Reich, as his head coach. Uh, I think maybe the thing, probably the most noticeable out of this was the out of this whole thing was that the Eagles front office never had a plan fully set because first they sit Wentz. I, well, I don't know if that was their decision so much as it was Doug Peterson's sit Wentz. Uh, then you play Hertz. Hertz plays well last game of the year, five minutes left. There's still a chance to win. They 
I don't know whether it was Peterson's decision or the front office's decision to sit Hurts in a winnable game, in a very winnable game, and then they're and then they fired Doug Peterson. Still don't know whose decision it is. And now all of that, and they trade Carson Wentz for very a very small return, really. They should have gotten a first-round pick out of this. Because put Carson Wentz, Carson Wentz in an Eagles uniform this year, bad. Or, or, well, not great. Carson Wentz in a Colts uniform next year will be frightening. So I don't, it's a bad deal. It was a really bad, it was a, it was a really bad deal for the Eagles. I don't get it whatsoever. Now, Jalen Hurts obviously is the guy. He's the next guy, and I don't know what Doug Peterson was doing. I don't know how much he was involved with the decision-making. But aside from the one, the one year where they won the Super Bowl, I, not just not a great tenure, and it just I. But at least the front office finally has some idea of what of what they're doing. They're finally sticking to a direction. And one more thing in the NFL: Mike Yupati retires after 11 seasons, five in San Francisco from 2010 through 2014, four in Arizona from 2015 through 2018. Two in Seattle from 2019 to 2020. Four-time Pro Bowler and NFC Champion in San Francisco. And if not for the lack of a holding call that probably should have been made uh, against uh, the Ravens, against Michael Crabtree in, in the Super Bowl, may have been a world champion. Played 140 games. Think about this. As a, as a guard, played 140 games over 11 seasons. That's 13 to 14 a year. That's pretty solid for a lineman. So, best to him in retirement. In the NBA... Minnesota Timberwolves fire Ryan Saunders. Now Saunders, I think they gave a year and a half, like two years maybe. Now I, I mentioned this with the Mariners, and this is obviously a different sport and a different organization in a different city. But there's another. I think this was another mishandled case uh, and a bit of a premature case of firing because history tends to repeat itself. And I think this is perhaps another case of the Timberwolves letting go of a coach too soon. So the Minnesota Timberwolves have existed since, I believe, either 1988 or 1989. Uh, Flip Saunders, Ryan Saunders' late father, by far the team's most successful head coach in history, led into the playoffs, I think, like seven or eight or nine straight years, though pretty much every year they got knocked out in the first round. And then in 2003, they get all the way, not only do they finally win a playoff series, they win the second round, they play the two-time defending champion, or sorry, 2004, they play the Los Angeles Lakers, a team that had won three consecutive championships before the Spurs had won in 03, and they take they push the Lakers to six games, give them credit, they didn't just roll over and die. That's the only time the, the Timberwolves have ever reached the conference finals. Less than a half season, less than a half season later, later the Timberwolves fire Flip Saunders. And between 2005 and 2000, I believe it was 2018, the Timberwolves did not make the playoffs again. In 2018, they made it back. They fired Tom Thib- They hired Tom Thibodeau, who brings in a culture change. We obviously mentioned what he did with the Bulls, who were kind of in limbo after Michael Jordan's retirement for, for about 10 years or so, and what Thibodeau did with the Bulls and Derrick Rose 
and you know they just just ran into a wall that was the the LeBron era Heat and maybe the officiating and and then he brought another and obviously since then he's brought another great culture change to the Knicks. Now he brought a so he, in between that time he brought a culture change to Minnesota. Jimmy Butler came in all that jazz and. Thibodeau actually got the Timberwolves to the playoffs. That's the only time they've reached the playoffs, I think, since 2005. And then they fire him less than a year later, less than a year after taking them to the playoffs for the first time since Saunders firing. And now they've fired Ryan Saunders. Grant, they brought him in really young, but I, I would have given him more time to develop this team. He only had a half season maybe with Anthony Edwards, a very high pick, and Carl Anthony Towns, and a team that was really starting to restructure and rebuild. But the thing is, I watched Saunders' last game. The Timberwolves were playing the Knicks at the Garden, and the Timberwolves, part of this I think was on the Knicks, but the Timberwolves were down at something like 17 points, maybe 20 points at one point, and fought back to lose maybe by like three or four. It was a very close game. I don't know why that's the time at which you fire him. Now, apparently the Timberwolves GM knows, I forget this guy's name, I think it's Chris something, um, that they hired from the Raptors. Now, that's the thing. This is the first time since, apparently, the Grizzlies hired Lionel Hollins in 2009 that an NBA team has fired a coach at midseason and hired, and immediately hired... Not an interim coach, but a full-time head coach off another team's staff at midseason. It's the first time in 12 years that that's happened. Clearly, I don't think it really mattered what Ryan Saunders was going to do. I think this was a decision made in advance. Because apparently the, the GM of the Timberwolves and the assistant coach and the new Timberwolves head coach knew each other. They worked together in Houston. I don't think this was... I mean, clearly, the timing was poor. Clearly, this was something where you know, it didn't matter what Ryan Saunders was going to do. The Timberwolves were going to bring in somebody new. The Timberwolves have obviously pulled the trigger too quickly on firing head coaches in the last few years. And but you but you just hope that they think that they actually have a guy who can institute a culture change culture change in the organization. And you know, it, it, we talk about this in the NFL where. There can be a head coach. You hire a general manager before you hire a head coach because that is that general manager's head coach. You want you want those two to work well together and to know that one per, that the general manager had some input in hiring the head coach. So that's what you're hoping if you're a Timberwolves fan that this is the right guy, regardless of how they may have treated Ryan Saunders. Oh, by the way, uh, speaking of which, Ryan Saunders apparently was not allowed on the plane to fly home with the team from New York to Minneapolis or wherever they were going next. So just horrible. But if you're a Timberwolves fan, you're hoping that that's that they, that this GM got the guy he wanted and then he can implement a plan for success. Okay. So last thing before wrapping up the show, I am so happy to say that the situation with the pandemic has improved recently enough that there are fans back in arenas and stadiums in New York and now New Jersey. 
uh, I believe it's 10% in New York, 15% in New Jersey, 10% at least in New York City. It might be more in Buffalo. So glad for this area that we can finally be back. I'm I'm certainly going. I've been in. Look, I've been. I have been so careful throughout this whole thing. I have taken my mask off once in, in the entire to briefly eat. I I even tried to do it outside. This entire time, I have been so careful. I have been so careful with this whole thing, and. It's with that that I am going to just choose to be happy and actually go to go to one of these games. I am so happy. Uh, so, so let's see. So anyone, so Devils, Giants, Jets, Seton Hall, they can all have fans now. Uh, well, that well Seton Hall is one thing for college, but indoor arenas can have fans at fifteen percent in New Jersey, I believe, and ten percent in New York City. They finally opened up MSG for the first time in nearly a year, which is insane. God, I remember I was supposed. It's still look. It's not. A, it's not a, a life or death matter, but it's still a, a sort sort of traumatizing experience that I was that close to actually being on the call for the Big East tournament. I was like four. I was like six hours away from being on the call for the Big East Tournament for Seton Hall and men's basketball at Madison Square Garden. I was going to call a game at Madison Square Garden, and then it was all just taken away. I was I was maybe going to call some games in the NCAA Tournament. That whole thing was taken away, and that happened for a lot of us. There was some, I'm fortunate that I at least... Look, I, look, I have... I'm not going to say thrived, but I've been a lot more fortunate than a lot of people through this situation. I haven't lost any family members through this time. We, I mean, I've, we've lost people we know, but nobody within our family and nobody within my immediate family has gotten COVID. I'm very fortunate, but for all of us, there has been some sort of loss through all of this. And to think almost a year later and watching, I watched the, Nixon Warriors last night, and it was so good. Mike Breen was so happy about it. You could you could tell in the way he talked. He brought it up over and over again. It was so good to have actual fans in the world's most famous arena again. There were about 1,800 people, and that is just a, a microcosm of what's going to happen when fans, not just because it's 10%, but just a microcosm of what's going to happen within the New York sports scene when fans come back for... Yankees, Mets, Giants, Jets, Knicks, Net, uh, Nets fans were back. Uh, Nick, Knicks, Nets, Rangers, Islanders, Devils, um, Seton Hall, St. John's. Uh, God, it, it, all of it. It's uh, it's it's going to be so good j- just to be back because sports represents some of the best in us. We talk about being together, and it, I mean, aside from I don't know, maybe a a, a concert or something. There is no place where we can truly join that many people together as we do for a sporting event. It's so wonderful to have some sort of community. Think about think about what sports did for team for. I, I spoke about this a few episodes ago. Think about what sports did for New York after 9/11 with the Yankees run of the World Series. Think about what sports did for Boston after the Boston Marathon bombing and 
uh, the Red Sox winning the World Series, the, the Bruins winning the getting to the Stanley Cup Final, the Astros, albeit somewhat tainted, winning the World Series after the Hurricane, everything. A lot, this And obviously it's terrible that these things happen, but sports is such a healing thing for our community. And the fact that we could not join together for so long just makes it all the more difficult this time. So I I loved watching that game because first off it was the Knicks and the Warriors two teams that are they're about 500 this year I know it's different with no Clay Thompson and the Knicks are not that great but they've, they've improved but it was a, a fairly good game and the fact that there were about probably about I know 10 percent of the Garden is 1,820 people I don't know if that's what it was exactly but a good enough amount of people uh, you hear. <laughs> People chanting MVP for Julius Randle, which I thought was kind of funny, but it's also kind of a fair point. And it was the, the day he got named to the All-Star team, rightfully so. So I'm just so happy that people are starting to to join together again. It's it's such a beautiful thing, especially on a, on a sporting level, because sports really is a microcosm of life. So I thank you so much for listening this week, and uh, listen again next week here on Sports in the Waiting Room.